0: You're listening to the 21st Century Guide to the New Testament series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We have the privilege tonight of being in the book of 3rd John. It's actually the shortest book in the Bible. Um, In King James, it has 294 English words, um, 219 in the Greek, and only 14 verses. So it's a very short book. What we're going to do tonight is we'll look at this book, and in the book we'll find three very brief character sketches. We'll see the character sketch of a man named Gaius. Gaius is the person to whom the letter is written. And we'll see a little bit about his life and what he's all about. We'll see the nemesis in the book named Diotrephes. Diotrephes loved the preeminence, and so we see the warning that he receives and how John feels about him. And then we see finally... The example in the book is Demetrius. He is the one being commended to the church here. And so um, we'll look at these men. I think we'll we'll learn some lessons from their lives and hopefully apply them to our lives. You know what? We don't have any letters that are written directly to our church, right? I mean, we wouldn't expect to. God is not now in the business of taking a person and saying, okay, you know, this person is going to write your church a letter and deal with three people in your church. But sometimes I wonder... If God was to write a letter to our church, if he was to write a letter about my life, just in a few verses, what would he say? What would he commend me for? What would he warn me against? What would he rebuke me for? And I think sometimes looking at it that way and and saying, you know what, how is the Bible? Because the truth is God has written a letter for us. He's written his word for us. And so, we should be in the word, not just thinking as though it's something that was written so long ago to people that are in a past time. We should be thinking, yes, but God's word is alive. And it was written for me. And so where in this is God speaking to me? What is, what is he trying to change my life? How is he trying to mold me into the shape of Christ? And I think we should approach the Bible that way. And so I hope tonight as we look at the, these three men, we say, you know what, God, in this... What do I need to work on? Because the truth is, when we get into the application, I'm going to give you seven things. And that's a lot. There's a lot of preachers that say you should just focus on one. And so when we took these seven things, hopefully we'll find at least one of them that hit each of us. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. I thank you for this evening. I thank you for your word and and the short letter we to look at tonight, Lord. Um, Sometimes I wonder if John knew it would be um, in the Bible someday, just picking up and writing such a short letter to a friend named Gaius, and yet, Lord, you had a, a plan so much greater than I think he envisioned for it, that you're using it to work in the hearts of lives of your people today. So God, I pray you do that tonight, and I pray that you'd help us to scour the text for things that you're looking to change in our lives. Allow us to be receptive to the Holy Spirit's work, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the author of this epistle, this letter, is the Apostle John. Um, Again, he doesn't name himself explicitly as John, but he begins with the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius. And we looked at this in more detail last lesson, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but we can very clearly identify the elder as the Apostle John. We know that from the fact that his writing style is so similar to John's gospel, to Revelation, to the other things he's written. And we know that simply because church tradition is, is abundantly clear on who wrote this book. So it was the Apostle John. At this time, he was probably still pastoring the church of Ephesus. Probably AD 85 to AD 90 would be a good date to put it at, somewhere in there. And he's probably, it was, it was before he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, before he wrote the book of Revelation. It's probably, I, I, in, even at the end of this book, he expresses a desire to go and see Gaius, to go see this church. And I wonder if maybe he didn't get to ever fulfill that desire because he was exiled soon after that. Um, but that's about when it's written. The audience is the well-beloved Gaius. So it was written to a, a person. Um, what we know about Gaius, well, there, we can look kind of generally through Scripture and say, what what can we find out about Gaius? Is he anywhere else in Scripture? We know that his name, it means a Christian. And F.F. F. Bruce said that it was one of... Only a dozen and a half names from which Roman parents could choose a name for one of their sons. And so it was a very, very, very popular name back then. Okay? One of 18 people were named Gaius. That's basically what he's getting at. Well, it's found five times in the New Testament. We find it in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. We, we hear of a man called Gaius of Macedonia. He's working there with Paul in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, verse 4, we we hear of another Gaius named Gaius of Derby. Different place, but same name. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14, we hear of a Gaius of Corinth. And um, this this Gaius, we Gaius, we find out that he was one of two people that Paul baptized while he was in Corinth. So remember Paul, the pastors in the book of 1 Corinthians? He spoke about Crispus, who was the chief ruler of the synagogue who got saved. Well, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he says, I baptized only two people, and it was Crispus and Gaius. So that would almost indicate that Gaius was one of the very early converts there. And So here's Gaius. We also find this same Gaius that's found in 1 Corinthians, mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. And there he's called Paul's host. And so we know that the second time that Paul was in Corinth, when he wrote the book of Romans, He stayed at someone's house. It wasn't at Aquila and Priscilla's house this time. It seems like he stayed at Gaius' house on his second trip there. That's when he wrote Romans, and um, now we have Gaius as a host. And I say all that, but the fact is, we don't know if any of these men are actually the Gaius mentioned here in the book of 3 John. Um, Gaius was such a common name. It is interesting to me that we find in 1 Corinthians, in the town of Corinth, that he's a host and what he's commended for here in this letter is being a host to missionaries, but we still don't know if that's, that's the Gaius. What we do know about Gaius, what we'll find out in this book, is that John really, really loved him. John had a great deal of love for this man. He says, I love you in the truth. And he mentions it multiple times in such a short letter. We also find that he knows and he was walking in truth. He knows the truth. It's in him. But only that, he's living it out in his life. And this fact brought John a great deal of joy. And it makes me believe that maybe this was a different Gaius because it seems like he, he calls Gaius his child in the faith. It seems like maybe Gaius was a convert of John. And I can tell you, it, it's exciting to see somebody who you've seen from the very beginning of their salvation to grow in Christ. It's this kind of joy that it seems like John is expressing here in the letter. The purpose of the book? Was to commend and encourage Gaius's godly living, to warn against the arrogance of Diotrephes, and to endorse Demetrius as a godly man or a godly example. The outline, and this is what I want to do tonight. I want to walk through the text. We're just going to go verse by verse. The outline. The first two verses are the introduction. It says, "The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers." This is a great beginning that John, he speaks to a guy, says, listen, I love you in the truth. And this is what I desire for you. This is what I wish for you. But the word wish there, it's not just like, oh, I'm throwing a wish in the air. It's like, this is what I'm praying. This is what I really hope for you. Okay. This is an earnest desire, something that he would have been praying about. And he wishes above all things that, that you may be, prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. It's kind of funny how he says it that way, isn't it? It's like your spiritual life is so good, I hope your physical health is just as good. But I know your spiritual health is that good. We would usually think of it the other way around, like, right? We can we can judge somebody's physical health, but not really their spiritual health. And Paul says, "I see your spiritual health. It is so good. I hope I hope that your physical health is as good as that." That's fantastic. He goes on, in verse 3, he says, "For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth." That is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And here John is expressing this joy that he, when he sees his child in the faith, when he sees Gaius walking in truth, not just having it in him, but living it out. Verse five, beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to the strangers. And so, what you're doing—he's not specific yet about what he's doing, but what you're doing—you're doing faithfully. You're doing it all the time. It's a constant thing. It's not just a a one-off. Yeah, you serve God, and now you're done forever. It's something you're you're continuing to do, and you're not just doing it for the brethren, those people that are really close to you. Maybe those people in your church that you see all the time. You're doing it for the strangers. Now, the strangers here—it wouldn't be talking about unsaved people at this point. We're going to find that out in a moment. He's talking about. Other believers that he didn't necessarily know, other than he knew their doctrine, he knew what they were teaching, he knew why they were here, and so you're faithful, you're serving these people who you don't even know because they're partners in the gospel. He goes, he goes on to explain that he says, "Which have borne witness of thy charity." So these these traveling missionaries have borne witness of thy charity before the church, and that gives me an idea that maybe they were sent from the church in the first place. Maybe it was John's church that sent these missionaries to wherever Gaius is because they're coming back to the church to report what they heard. And one of the things they reported was the love that Gaius showed them. He says, Whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. So keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep helping them on their journey. Verse 7, Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. John says, for his name's sake. These people went out, these missionaries were going out, they were not making a profit. They were not receiving anything from the Gentiles they were preaching to. Gives you an idea that maybe Gaius was in a Gentile place. They weren't receiving a profit. And so you are helping them, but you are helping them because they were doing it for his name's sake. And the result of that, the result of you and them teaming together, you providing the hospitality, you maybe helping them on their way, maybe giving them some money for their journey, whatever you did to help them, ultimately resulted in the fact that now you two are fellow laborers in the gospel together. That's a wonderful thing. These guys came from here with a mission, and all of a sudden, Gaius is a part of that mission. He's not just sitting on the sidelines watching. He's not just, you know, oh, I'm so glad there's missionaries in my town. Now I can just let them, you know, save the world. He's getting involved, And the Bible doesn't just say, okay, well, you got missionaries that have these jobs, and then you have people in the church that are supposed to help them, and they're completely distinct things. He says, no, now they're a team. They're working together for the gospel. This is a team effort. Um, And just as kind of a side note, it is amazing when you read Paul's letters. We think of Paul as this perfect missionary, this wonderful guy. It's amazing when you read his letters how much credit he gives to those people that helped him on his journey. Constantly, at the end of the letters, he's commending people, he's thanking people, he's 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 saying hi to them. Why? Because they're fellow laborers in the gospel. It wasn't Paul's show. This is God's work, and we all have different parts to play in it. And so Gaius was playing his part. Then in verse 9, he says, I wrote unto the church. So here we're getting into the, the warning against Diotrephes. He says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, received us not. He did not have to say anything about Diotrephes' motives. He could have said, there's a guy there, Diotrephes. You know him. He received us not. Now, that makes me think that Diotrephes was probably one of the elders of the church. He had a great deal of authority because he had the ability to not receive John and John's fellow laborers when they came to the church. But what's amazing here is that he says exactly what it is that was his problem. This, I think this is the Holy Spirit revealing to John what the problem with Diotrephes' heart is. And that is that he loves to have the preeminence. What a huge problem. And it's so common in leadership. It is so difficult. I mean, I know all people deal with different sins. They, we all have different problems. But there are some temptations that come up in your life because you live the life you live. Right? Because you're in the situation, you're in your work. Do you know what the temptation for leadership in a church often is? It's this, preeminence. But it's not just the leaders. Oftentimes, it's people that work in ministries. It is the, the leader of the nursery or the person who works in you know, the kids club program. Or you pick a program, pick something. We want to be known and recognized. We want people to see us. We don't care as much about everybody just seeing Christ. Okay it's interesting that this word preeminence is only used twice in Scripture. It's used one time in Colossians 1.18 to say that Jesus ought to have the preeminence in the church. He came so that he would have the preeminence among the brethren. But Jesus is supposed to have the preeminence. The only other time it's used is when it says, Diotrephes wants to have the preeminence. Okay? The idea is, Christ must have the preeminence. And we need to constantly remind ourselves in every ministry we're in, it is not about us, ever. It's all about Christ. And so, He says, this is Dajphi's problem. He goes into more detail of what he's done. He says in verse 10, Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren and forbids them that would and casts them out of the church. This is what Dajphi is doing. He's got so much authority and power of the church that not, like he's speaking evil, wicked words, prating, um, berating them with his speech. John. I mean, the apostle John. People knew John. Imagine how gutsy you would have to be to go against the only living apostle. But he's doing it. Malicious words attacking him. And not only that, when people come representing John, he's not receiving them for himself, and he's kicking people out of the church that are trying to receive him. So you let John come into your your assembly, your, your house, you try and provide a meal for him, next thing you know, you're excommunicated from the church that Diotrephes is in. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's what's going on here. And so Gaius, instead of just, sorry, John, instead of just spending all this time talking about talking about Diotrephes, I mean, he says, listen, I'm going to come, I'm going to try and deal with them. I'm looking forward to dealing with this problem. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. And I, I want this to be a lesson for you, Gaius. He says, in verse 11, beloved follow not that which is evil but that which is good he that does good is of god but he that does evil has not seen god very bold words and we've seen these almost the identical words in first john over and over again if you know truth, if, you, if you've if you seen, and I like how he says "seen God, it's not just know truth, it's if you haven't had this relationship with God, if you haven't pictured, if you don't know him intimately yourself, then you don't do good. But when you do know him, you do do good. When you know the beauty of who God is, when you know how wonderful he is, when you know his character, when you know what he's done for you, when you know that about God, you can't but help be changed. Now it's, it's, Not a perfection that happens to you, but it is the beginning of something that that continues to change and grow in time. And if that isn't happening, then you've not seen God. And he's speaking about Dachshvi saying, listen, you've got an elder in your church and he's not saved. He's, He's the opposite of who you should follow. He has never even seen God. No relationship. It says in verse number 12. So he says, follow that which is good. And then he puts up Demetrius as this example. Demetrius has a good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record and you know that our record is true. Follow that which is good. And listen, here's this guy delivering the letter for you. Here's Demetrius. Okay? This guy's a good guy. I'm telling you, he's In, In fact, everybody that knows him, generally people, men in our church, we think he's a good guy. His neighbors, his friends... He's got a good record of all men, a good report of all men. And of the truth itself. When you compare his life with the word of God, you see he's a good man. He stands he a stands test. He's living out the gospel. And not only that, I've seen it with my own eyes. And you know that I'm not going to lie to you. Demetrius is a good man. He's a man you can follow. And then in his final words, he concludes in verse 13 and 14, I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. Just interesting there that he says the word ink and pen because it means that he was writing on papyrus, which there's a couple times, ways you could have written, and, and he would have used a, a pen that looked like a stalk, kind of like a quill pen would now, and dip it in melted wax and then write it on papyrus. And So that's how what he would have done. It. He's, he's making it clear. This is how I wrote the letter. There's a lot of things I want to write to you, but I can't write them all down. It's taking a long time. I'm planning, I'm hoping to see you. But I trust that I shall see thee shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee, our friends. Salute thee, greet the friends by name. Such a short letter and such a powerful letter. A great reminder for us, as we read this letter, we're reminded that the reason—at least I was reminded—that the reason ministry is often so emotionally difficult, so so seemingly draining, because you see here what a blessing, first of all, what a blessing people can be. I mean, you see how you, you can have this, these wonderful times where you see somebody growing, you see somebody walking in the truth, you get so excited about their life, and then you can see how devastating it can be when you have somebody like Diotrephes that is just ruining this church, causing the church to kick out missionaries that are preaching the gospel. I mean, excommunicating people that are trying to love and help, that's happening in a church. And so it can be so encouraging and so draining at the same time. Um, well, the good news is your job is not to make our lives easy. A okay, ministry can be draining, but your job is not to make our lives easy. Your job is to work alongside the Holy Spirit as he transforms you into the image of Christ. And so, to that end, here are some practical suggestions that we find in our text. Number one, pray for and love people it seems insanely obvious to say, but if you're going to do anything in the work of God, you've got to love people. You've got to pray for them. You've got to be invested in them. And this is John being invested in Gaius. The reason we have this letter is because of his love for Gaius, right? He begins and he says, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius. I mean, I love you Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I love you again. I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. I'm investing in you. I know that your spiritual health is good. I hope your physical health is the same good. This is my prayer for you. I love you. I love you. I love you. This is how John is doing ministry. And I think he was probably pretty good at it. And so, we should pray for and love people. Number two, know and live the truth. Know and live the truth. Verse 3 says, For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as I walks in the truth. The truth is in you. And way too many people are content with that. you got to know the truth, absolutely. It's got to be in you. But then you got to walk in it. And it being in you means nothing if you're not walking in it. And so, know and walk in the truth. Um, truth that is in you ought to be outside of you as well. It should be visible. If it's not visible, there's a problem. It'd be silly if I told you that I had a great deal of joy and I said, I have joy. And see, it doesn't look like it. Yeah, but here's the thing. I mean, I, I know I can say that and I'm not saying that our lives are just going to be gushing all the time, right? But it'd be the equivalent of me saying I have joy like that of you living a Christian life that is completely devoid of joy when you're saying that the God of the universe sent his son to die on the cross because he loves you that much, he saved you from eternal hell to give you an eternal place in heaven, and you live your life like it's just terrible all the time. You live your life like you don't care or love anybody. It'd be ridiculous for you to claim that when you're living that, right? And so you got to know and love the truth. Do you know that when you do that, it encourages other people? I mean, when we, when, when we see people living the truth that they know, when it's evident in their lives, I mean, and it is evident in your life. And when we see it, it's so encouraging. It's encouraging for Pastor Mark. I'm sure it's encouraging for other people in this church as well. Do you know what's been interesting as I've watched the Olympics this year, what I've been focusing on? So that you have people go down and they do their run. And, and even if they don't win, you have them, if they've done a good job, they're excited. And usually they do like, they they span and you see, pan, and you see the parents and it's like, oh yeah, they're really excited for them too. And then you often see just a glimpse of the coach. And it's amazing to see how nuts the coach is going when they see something they've taught do well. I'm telling you, the joy in their faces is almost always greater than the joy in the person who just performed well. It's just how it is. And so it's encouraging when you see people living out the truth. It's encouraging when you see somebody that you've tried to help and train and guide getting it. So know and live the truth. Number three, be faithful and unbiased in your service. Be faithful and unbiased in your service. Beloved, verse five, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. Just be faithful. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be this massive, obvious thing you do all the time. But be faithful. Day in and day out, do what you're supposed to do for Christ. It is one of the hardest things to do, and one of the and the thing that all people can do. Okay, above all things, the requirement of stewards is that we're faithful. And and the funny thing about that is that this is this is something that like if you were to say this to a new Christian, they wouldn't completely get it. There's it no way. But and I know that I'm not even there yet. But I've been here here at this church for nine years, and I've seen some people come into this church, and I was like man, that person is just an awesome servant of God. They're smart. They can speak well. You know, they have talents and abilities I wish I had. They're going to do great things for God. And then in a year or two years, they're gone. They're not doing anything. And then there's other people that I thought, what is God going to do with them? Okay, Some of them are here on Sunday, but not tonight. Um, I just lied. Okay, but the, but the awesome thing is... You know what the awesome thing is, though, is that I've been blessed by those people that I thought God can not do anything with, right? And I know they're here, right? Because they're faithful, okay? And they're not always the brightest, and they're not always the best at it, and they're not the smoothest and whatever, but they really love the gospel. They love Jesus. They love people, and they're doing it day in and day out, and it's encouraging, and it helps people. And so be faithful and unbiased in your service. It shouldn't be just this small group of people that you, you're your little clique that you're loving to. It should be the church as a whole. Strangers. Look for the strangers in your church to serve and love. It's natural to love people that are like you. It's supernatural to love people that are unlovely. Four, be a fellow laborer in the gospel. Verse 6 to 8 says, Which have borne witness of thy charity, speaking of these missionaries have come in, before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Good thing to do. Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we don't be fellow helpers to the truth. And that's just, in this case, Gaius had provided hospitality for traveling missionaries. That's what it meant for him to be a fellow helper in the gospel. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? Why didn't they just stay in a hotel? Why didn't they just find something else to do? Well, back then it was a very big deal because sleeping in a hotel or sleeping in the equivalent, an inn, was often filthy. It was often rodent infested and, and, um, there was innkeepers that would extort you and there was criminals and, and there was, a lot of inns that were nothing more than, than brothels. You could sleep over at, and so this was something where they had a, a hard time when missionaries went out. This was a real need they had: was to find a, a clean place that they could sleep, they could be well fed, they could be taken care of. It wouldn't cost them a bunch of money. People aren't going to steal from them. There's a real need they had, so they saw the real need and they met it. Now that might not be the number one need that we ha- find other people that are, you know, partnering with the gospel. Now there are other needs. But we need to be looking for those needs and finding those needs and partnering with them. Find somebody that's further in the gospel and then find out how they need help. Uh, There was, when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking how it's so essential that as believers, we are in a place where we're finding a way to use whatever God has given us for the furtherance of the gospel in our church. But what that requires often, we, we hand them those sheets, and we're trying to, to programatize getting people involved in the church. And that'll have some degree of, of success. Do you know what's going to have a great deal of success? When people realize that they need to get involved, and they just, start, they just start inserting themselves in. They just say, hey, listen, that's a need. Can I meet that? Can I help out in this ministry? I know it's, it's struggling. Um, can I do this or that or whatever it is? That is, that is the way we're really going to get people plugged in and, and furthering the gospel. And so what all he was doing, is finding a need, and he was meeting it. They are God's servants. They're working for his name. They're not receiving support from people they're preaching to. And it's a privilege because it allows us to be a part of their work. Be a fellow laborer in the gospel. Number five, learn submission. Submission is like a word in our culture that everybody seems to hate. I mean, even the idea of submitting to your boss. This wasn't even a thing that was discussed throughout history. It was like, yeah, obviously you submit to your boss because he's your boss. But now it's like, oh no, my I have all the rights and my boss is like bound by all the rights that I have as, as their employee. It's almost better to be an employee somewhere than the boss because you're just treated better. It's expected. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't treat your employees poorly. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that it's not a bad thing. But what I'm trying to get at is Submission is something that we abhor in our culture, but it's something that is commanded so many times throughout Scripture. Do you know what Diatrophy's problem here was? He didn't like any authority. He didn't like anybody that had authority but himself. He didn't like Christ having authority, and because he didn't like Christ having authority, he didn't like the representatives of Christ having authority. And so his solution was to kick them out. Oh, you're going to help those people that, that think that Christ should have the authority and that are trying to represent him? Okay, well, I'm going to kick you out too. I'm going to do whatever I can to hold on to authority because I want control and I don't want anybody telling me what I should do. Now, before you think, oh, this is just the pastor telling you that you need to be in submission, he was, he was a pastor. Dajfiz was an elder and he couldn't submit. And that was his problem. Richard Baxter said this. He said, unsubmissive leaders always become the greatest tyrants and their disobedience manifests their lack of love this is a problem throughout the church leadership clergy just your average believer everybody needs to work on this idea of submission because we're required to submit to one another we're all required to certainly submit to christ submit to the word of god just learn to submit um, even though it goes against our culture, it is a very, very biblical thing to do. Do you know that Diotrephes here, it, we don't find that he's teaching any heresy? In First John and Second John, John dealt so much with this heresy of teaching that Christ didn't come in the flesh. And here he says absolutely nothing about it. This was a guy who apparently, because otherwise he probably would have mentioned apparently was doctrinally sound. And he couldn't submit to authority and it was tearing this church apart. So submit to authority. Number six, know God. Verse 11 says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. And I think the whole thing at the end, when it's talking about seeing God, sums up this whole letter. How are you going to know what is good? How are you going to discern what is evil? Well, you have to know God. You have to know his word. You have to spend time with him. The only way you're going to know that Diotrephes isn't the next celebrity pastor but is actually a tyrant who doesn't love Christ is if you know God and you know his word. If you've seen God. And that's how you know not to follow a guy like that. How are you going to know that another pastor or or another leadership example, like Demetrius, is actually a guy who loves God? You've got to know the word. You have to know God and then you can see it in them, in their lives. And so you must know God. I don't think you can make too much of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 10 and 11 really talk about what it means to live the Christian life by faith. Example after example, before that, we have the command that the just shall live by faith. And then it kind of comes to a culmination when it speaks about, okay, so how do you do it? What's the secret? What is the thing that we do to live the Christian life the way we're supposed to live it? And the secret in Hebrews 12, 1 is, Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which just so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So he says, Let's run this, let's live this life the way we're supposed to. Get rid of the sin in your life, live it for Christ, live it right. But this is the key. Verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the key. Look to Jesus. Know Jesus. Because all of this other stuff, it's just going to be like, okay, how do I equate this in my mind? When you know Jesus, a lot of these things I've already said, they're, they're going to naturally happen. You're going to put him first. You're going to love him. You're going to help other people. You're going to pray for other people. You're going to know the heart of God. And so this stuff just starts to happen naturally. Know God. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. The only way that you will ever have the mind of Christ is if you know him. Number seven, be an example of godliness. Be an example of godliness. Demetrius is used in verse 12 as an example of what it means to do all the things that John is told Gaius to do. He says, Demetrius has a good report of all men and of the truth itself, yea, and also we bear record, and you know that a record is true. Just a really short thing that's said about him. But you realize Demetrius had this opportunity to go to this church that was falling apart and try, and try and put the pieces back together, to try and deal with the autophies, to try and encourage Gaius. I mean, this is a big, important job that he's about to do. And the only reason he has this opportunity to serve God is because he has character. It's because he's trying to live out his faith. He has godliness in his life. People thought he was a good guy. In general, the word says he was. John knew that he was because he saw his life. The same should be able to be said of us. The people around us, they see our lives. Yeah, it's an example of a good guy. That guy's living out his faith. It should be that when we compare your life with the word of God, we say, yes, that person knows his word. He's living his word. He's an example of the truth. And it should be when individuals see you, they can say, hey, listen, that guy goes to my church, I know him, he's a good guy. He's a good girl. That, that, that lady, she's a sweet, godly lady. Should be able to say that of you. And so be an example. It's, it's not until we get this part down, I think we, we want to just jump right into this big ministry, and it's like, once I get that ministry, then God, I'll, then God I'll, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And God never does that. He, he gives ministries to the qualified. So here we get, in this letter, three character sketches. Gaius, to whom the letter is written, is encouraged to keep walking in the truth and and to practically show his love, walking in the truth, by demonstrating hospitality. Then we have Diotrephes, desiring the preeminence. He loved the spotlight. And you have Demetrius, who delivered the letter, who is here the example for us of what it means to, to have a godly life. John wrote this letter, I think, for a number of reasons. I think I think, all of those things, to warn, to um, encourage, to endorse Demetrius, I think all of those things came into it. But you realize that the Holy Spirit was active when John wrote this, that these are common problems in the church, that these are very practical things that we can learn from, that this letter wasn't just for Gaius, but that the Holy Spirit planned for it to be up for us today, that we need to pray for and love people, that we need to know and live the truth. That we must be faithful and unbiased in our service. That we must be a fellow laborer in the gospel. That we must learn submission. That we must know God. And that we must be an example of godliness. And that is the message of Third John.